good morning. If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3, we'll be finishing the chapter 3 and getting into chapter 4 this morning here in the book of Romans. We have gone through Romans 1, Romans 2, the first part of Romans 3, talking about sin. We are now getting to that point of hope. The book of Romans is the gospel of God. It's all about redemption. You've seen uh, this video played over and over and over these past uh, few months as we've been walking through verse by verse the book of Romans. And, and it's, it's so true. It's the scarlet thread of redemption. It's, it's woven through the pages of scripture how it is that we can find salvation in Christ and Christ alone. We find this again here in the pages uh, that we're looking at this morning. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse number 27. This is the word of the Lord. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say uh, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted or counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, Lord, I pray that we will lay aside every hindrance that we can hear from you today. We want to hear a word from you, oh, Father. Speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, please be seated. Two points today, two points only. And point number one is simply this. Not just any faith will do. As we look at these verses, it becomes very clear that it's dealing with faith and dealing with hope and how it is that we are to live. And we see in the opening verses that we just read that not just any faith will do. What in the world does Paul mean here in the last part of verse 27 when he talks about the law of faith? You see that there in your Bible, verse 27, he talks about the law of works, but then he says, we're not judged, we, we are not held accountable to the law of works. The law of works cannot save us. But then he says, and he throws this terminology that, that, that seems to contradict itself. He says it's the law of faith. What in the world is the law of faith? It seems to contradict itself because a law and faith don't seem to go together. What is a law? Well, a law is meant to restrict things, right? A law takes a situation and it governs it. It, it puts parameters around it. Laws can be broken. Now, I hear people say all the time, laws are made to be broken. That's not true. We, we don't just make laws so we can break them. Laws have the capability of being broken, but laws are not given in order to be broken. So we think about a law. We think about the concept of speed. Every one of us who drove here on a car or a bus or however you got here, a scooter, I, I don't know, we, we have speedometers on, on these vehicles. And your speedometer, if it's like mine, and most of the cars I've ever been in, it shows that the speedometer goes from zero all the way to 140. Some go to 160. Some go to 180. 
I have no idea if my car can go that fast. I hope that you have no idea whether or not your car can go that fast. You know, our, our cars have the ability, it seems, to go very, very fast. There's only one place in this area that I know that we should even attempt that, and that's in Daytona, but please don't do that. You see, the law restricts the speed. The law, every corner of the street that you come to, you, you find a, a law that has restricted the speed. Some of these signs say 25 miles per hour. Some say 35. Some say 55. It varies, but the law governs it. You see, the speed is, is oblivious. We, we can go as fast as we want to. We can go 160, 170, 108. We can go as fast as we want to. But the law is meant to take the idea of speed and to govern it, to put parameters around it. You're in a vehicle that can exceed the law. But just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Laws are a good thing. Anyone here not thankful for electricity? We're thankful for electricity, and, and you understand that electricity has laws tied to it as well, the, the laws of electricity. Through these walls and, and under our pews and everywhere we look, we, we, we find wires, and, and these wires, these copper wires carry electricity. Electricity harnessed is a good thing. Have you ever grabbed a hold of a hot wire before, though? Untamed electricity is deadly. It can hurt. Electricity outside of it of being controlled is deadly, and in the same way it is with the law of faith. Everybody, everybody has faith. You don't have to be a Christian to have faith. Every human being has faith. You have faith in something. But what the law of faith says is merely having the faith in something is not good enough. What God's law of faith is, it constricts, it confines, it governs. It's not enough that you can go 180 miles per hour in your car. You have to be governed. Now, you can do whatever you want to, but you're going to face the consequences for doing that. You have all this power running through your house, and, and that's a great thing because it allows you to, 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 to have uh, clocks and, and, and be able to charge phones and turn on televisions and have lights and all this other stuff. Electricity is good. You can choose to go and stick a screwdriver, not... The, the, do not do this at home. Disclaimer, do not do this. You can take a screwdriver and stick it into an outlet and see what happens. Boom. You have the ability to do that. But the law of electricity says if you do that, boom, is what's going to happen. Consequences to pay if you break the law. We have this faith. Everybody has this faith. But there is a law that says that not just any faith will do. There is a restriction. There are parameters. You have the choice to place your faith in whatever you want to. You can believe in whatever you want to. But the law of faith says that if you go outside what God says, you will face the consequences for your actions. Does that make sense? So we have this ability, and we understand that not just any faith will do. This is what he says in verses 27 and following. And then it goes to, and he goes and he answers this question, well, if, if not just any faith will do, then what faith will do? Well, he says this certain type of faith is required to be saved. That's point number two. There is a certain type of faith that is required in order for us to be saved. Point number two. Here, Paul talks about being justified by faith. 
we throw this term around a lot, justified. We are justified by, by faith. We, 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 we use these, these big, lofty, biblical, theological terms, but I wonder how many of us actually understand what it is that we're talking about, justification. We, we talked about this word last week. We said justification, defined by Billy Graham, says, just as if I had not sinned. But I gave you a, a, another definition for justification that said this, that justification is a big term, an awesome term. That means it's the act of God by which he declares a believing sinner righteous. It's when God looks at you and you're a sinner and despite your sin, he looks past your sin and he declares you a sinner righteous even though you continue to sin. That's an amazing thing. That's justification. But here's the question. How is it that I, a sinner, can tap into God justifying me? How is it that I, a sinner, can come into this relationship with God where holy God will call me a sinner, no longer a sinner? How do we take this truth? How do we get that into our lives? Well, Paul uses Abraham, Father Abraham, as an example of how to be justified by faith. And what he's teaching here is that salvation is by faith alone. Faith alone. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus church. It's not faith plus creed. It's not faith plus character. It's not faith plus anything. It's faith alone, period, for salvation. There's three reasons, and we have to back up into chapter 3 to see these. We we're going to come back into the verses we looked at last week because here Paul gives us three reasons why our works cannot save us. And it's very clear. One is that sin prohibits us from reaching the standard of God's perfection. Sin prohibits us from reaching the standard of God's perfection. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short. So I cannot save myself because sin limits me. Sin keeps me from fulfilling God's plan and God's purpose in my life. And therefore, I cannot save myself because I am a sinner. Therefore, we can't do that. The second reason that good works can't save us, we can't save ourselves. There, there, there's, there, there, we, we can't just do enough good works, no matter how good, no matter how generous. Works can't cover up sin. Good works cannot cleanse us, cannot cover up our sin. Look back at verse 25 of chapter 3. Whom God put forward as a, here's another big word we looked at last week, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We cannot save ourselves because our works, my works, your works cannot cover up sin. Last week we talked about that word propitiation and we said it means satisfaction, it means to satisfy it, it means to cover up or to cover over. We're told here in this passage in the book of Romans that Jesus' blood is our propitiation. It is the satisfaction. It is that which covers over. We said that the blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God. It covers the wrath of God. This is how we're justified. I, I want you to see the picture. How is it that a sinner can be declared not a sinner despite the fact that I am a sinner? How is it that I am justified? The only way I can be justified is for God to come in and cover over my sin. So when he looks at me, he no longer sees my sin, but he sees a son following me. Holy God cannot look upon sin. 
When he looks at me, when he looks at you, apart from Jesus Christ, he sees a sinner. Why? Because we sin. So when he looks at us, he sees a sinner. So he must turn his back and we're met with the wrath of God. The only way justification can happen, the only way that God can declare us as sinners to be righteous, the only way that can happen is through this other big word, propitiation. For his blood to cover over. Every day when I come home from, from work, I come in and I, I love it because I, I come in and I can't wait to see my family. I, I come in and, and I come through the door and I can hear him, shh, 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 he's coming, he's coming. I pretend like I don't hear him. Where's Eli? Where's Abby? Where's my wife, Sarah? I come in and they're in a different room, but they're covered up with a blanket. I see them. I know that they're there, but I go through and I pull the cushions off the couch and, and I raise up the, the covers. I, 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 I move toys around. Where are you? And they're just giggling and laughing. I know where they are. But you see, the blanket covers over them. God knows who we are. But he chooses to see that covering covers over us. And when he looks at us, he no longer sees sinners. He, he sees sons and daughters of his own. The blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God. It covers the wrath of God. This is how we're justified. God hates sin. He cannot look past sin. For we sinners to be clean in his sight, it requires perfect blood to cover us over. You see, God can't look at sin. He's too holy. He's too pure. So the wrath of God, the fury of God, the judgment of God burns strongly against all sin. I ran out of time last week to, to talk about this word propitiation in greater detail, so I want to come back and, and hit it for just a moment because it has bearing on what we're talking about here today. The Greek word for propitiation is the word halastrion. Halastrion. I tell you this because it's the same word in the New Testament that's translated for mercy seat. And so in the Old Testament, the New Testament, when you find the word mercy seat, it's the word propitiation or the word halastrion, the mercy seat of God. Now what's the mercy seat? In the Old Testament, God made his presence known to the Jews from the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box that had two angels sitting on it looking at each other. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Not the actual Ark of the Covenant, but, but you, you, you know what I'm talking about. So get in your mind that this big golden box and, and two angels sitting on it, that, that top where the angels sit on, that's the mercy seat. That's the hilastrion. That's the place where the blood is sprinkled on one day a year, the day of Yom Kippur, the Jewish holy day, Yom Kippur. Yom means day, Kippur means atonement. So Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's one of the highest Jewish holy days there is. And so on that day, the high priest takes the blood, uh, the perfect blood of a spotless animal, and takes that blood into the Holy of Holies and stands before the ark, that big golden box, with the two angels sitting beside it. He dips his finger in the blood and he splatters it on the top of it. That's the mercy seat, the halastrion, the propitiation. You following me? Well, what's inside that ark? What's inside that ark is what makes all of this so beautiful. There's three things inside the Ark of the Covenant. There's three things inside that golden box. Number one are the Ten Commandments. What do the Ten Commandments do? The Ten Commandments tell us that we're sinners, right? 
Thou shalt not lie, but we lie. Thou shalt not murder. Well, we may not take another person's life, but Jesus said if you hate somebody in your heart, you've committed murder. So, so we've broken the commandments. And what the laws do is it tells us the fact that we are sinners. There's a second thing that's inside the Ark of the Covenant, and that's the manna. The, the bread that fell from heaven every day during the, the wandering years of, of the Hebrew children. There would, they would come out and there would be manna, but they got tired of the manna and they complained about the manna. And manna has become uh, synonymous with complaining. And then also what's in there is the staff of Aaron that blossomed. Why did the staff of Aaron blossom? Because again, the people complained. So we have three articles inside this big golden box, which represents the presence of God in the Old Testament. And inside this golden box are three articles that tell us and show us and demonstrate man's failure and man's sin and man's complaining. So inside this box is a picture of sin, but then on top of the box, we have the two angels, and then the top of the box, we said, is the holastrion, the, the propitiation, the, the mercy seat. And so the blood is taken, and the picture is the blood must cover over that mercy seat. So when God looks down and where his presence is, he no longer sees our sin and our failures and our complaining, but he sees the perfect blood. You see, this is the picture, God covering over. I want you to see how this word holastrion is mercy seat. Uh, the propitiation is used in the New Testament. Jesus was teaching on prayer, and he said there was a Pharisee who was praying over here on this side, and, and, and he was praying this big, illustrious prayer, and he was saying how grateful he is that he's not a sinner like that tax collector across the street. And Jesus said that that tax collector across the street, he was so broken within himself that he could not even raise his eyes to heaven. But he looked down at the ground and he beat his chest with his hands and he said, Lord, be holastrion to me. Lord, be mercy seated to me. Lord, be propitiated to me. Lord, have mercy on me is what he said. Same word. You, 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 you see, it's the blood of Jesus. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us has mercy on us. It, it satisfies the, the wrath of God. We are covered over by the blood of Jesus and no, he no longer sees our sin, he sees a son. You see, God's teaching us this, that, that everyone who comes to him must have their sins covered over by the blood of Jesus, the, the spotless lamb of God. Jesus, who is perfect in every way, he knew no sin. His blood was shed there on that cross. His blood is the propitiation. His blood is that satisfaction. His blood is that covering over, that covers over so that it repels the wrath of God. Now, how is this blood applied? Because you see, we, we don't have a high priest who comes in and sprinkles blood on a golden box that represents our sin. We, we, we don't have that anymore. So, so pastor, how in the world, because now that Jesus has come, how in the world can we apply that blood to our life? Do I have to work my way into it? Do I have to be a good person? Do I have to go to church? What is it that I can do in order for the blood to be applied to my life and for the blood of Jesus to cover over my life so that when he looks at me, he no longer sees a sinner, but he sees a son? How is that possible? Glad you asked. Paul answers that for us. Look back at verse 25. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see it. That's how the blood of Jesus is applied. Not by works, but by faith. The key word in this message today is how man's faith touches almighty God. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. Our works cannot cover our sin. 
That's why a perfect sacrifice is needed. Then the third reason why we can't save ourselves is that faith in the wrong thing will attribute glory to the wrong thing. Faith in the wrong thing will attribute glory to the wrong thing. So if I could save myself from my own sins, then who gets the glory? I do. If your church can save you from your sins, then who gets the glory? Your church does. If your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith or your children's faith could save you from hell, then who gets the glory? Those people do. But you see, God is a jealous God. God does not share his glory with any man. God, God is of, in and of himself pure and holy and righteous. God is only the one who is worthy of glory. That's why in verse 26, it says that God is the justifier of men. Man, man cannot justify himself. Verse 26, God is the justifier of men. So God says, I won't share my glory with anyone. Salvation plan, the salvation way is that in God and God alone has to be received by faith and faith alone. And so we meet here Abraham. Abraham is a man of impeccable character, a good man, a righteous man. And yet in this quality of his life, Abraham was still yet a sinner in need of righteousness, a savior. Where did God find Abraham? Did God find Abram, which was his name before God changed his name to Abraham, did God find Abram worshiping him? No. God found Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, the city of his father, worshiping the, the false gods of his father. You understand that the great-great-great-grandfather of Abram was Shem, who was the son of Noah, and they were the ones who did uh, and, and experienced the, the, the worldwide flood, right? Shem was still alive when Abram was walking around, and so surely Abram would have known about Yahweh, Jehovah God. He would have known the story of, of, of Noah and the worldwide flood. He would have seen and heard and, and experienced. He wouldn't have seen it, but he would have known all about this story. However, Abraham chose to do what, he, what, what so many of us do. We know the truth of the Lord. We, we know that God exists. We, we understand that Christ died for our sins, but we choose to worship other things. So this is where God found Abraham, the father of Judaism, the father of Christianity, the father of Islam. All three world religions have traced their roots back to this man, Abraham, a man of, of great character, a man of great faith. But here's yet a man who was an idolater, a worshiper of false gods, even though he knew the true God. So you see, Abraham was not perfect. He was in need of a savior. He himself needed righteousness. And the, the point that Paul is making here is that if Abraham needed to believe God for righteousness, as great and wonderful as Abraham was, if he needed to be saved, then you and I need to be saved. The fact is that we can live so much to gain the applause of men, but we can never so live to gain the acceptance and the approval of God in our own human energy. You cannot do enough. You cannot do enough good works to, to seek and get the approval of God. And unfortunately, so many people spend their whole lives seeking the approval of men rather than the right things to gain the approval of God. So what does Paul do? He, he said, since Abraham needs to come to Christ, since Abraham needed to be, believe God, how was he saved? Verse 3 says, for what does the scripture say? That's what Paul said. So, so to answer the question, how is Abraham saved? Paul says, well, what does the scripture say? He points back to the scripture. I have a whole sermon I could preach on that one little sentence. What does the scripture say? You go to so many churches today and they, they tell you what they have to say, what the pastor has to say. 20 ways to have a better Monday. 
You, you, you can learn all these great tips and, and walk out feeling great about yourself and motivated and all of these things. But, but my question is, what does the word of God say? I understand that you do not come to a Loma church to hear what Wesley Baldwin has to say. You come here to hear a word from the Lord. You see, what does the scripture have to say? I'm asked from time to time, why is it, Pastor, that, that at the beginning of your message, you always ask the congregation to stand in the honor of reading God's word? Why is it that you ask people to stand up when, when the word of God is read? Well, the reason why is because when the word of God is read, it is invoking and, and helping us to remember and understand that God's presence is here and God's presence is real. When the word of God is read, it is reminding us that God is with us and God is here in this holy place. And we dare not sit down in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we stand in his presence. If the president uh, would walk in, we stand in his honor. When we say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, we stand in the honor. We, when, when someone of notoriety walks in, we, we stand in the honor. This is also a very biblical thing. I, I encourage you to go back home and read the book of Nehemiah again. It's a great book to read there in the Old Testament. It's a story of a man who left a foreign country to come back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that once the walls got rebuilt, Nehemiah and Ezra, who rebuilt the temple, Ezra stands up and they do a worship service right outside the brand new walls. And as they, they, they open the word, it was the first time in hundreds of years that the word of God had been read in Jerusalem. And so the, the priest opened up the scrolls and began to read. And it says that when he opened the scrolls, the, the congregation stood. And the Bible says that, that he read, and the, the, the meaning here is he read and he read and he read for hours and hours hours and hours he read the word of God and the people the people stood for hours and hours and hours outside before electricity no air conditioning in Jerusalem it's hot and you think it's hot in Florida it's hot in Jerusalem and these people they stood and they stood and they stood in the presence of the word of God and then it says that as the word was read not preached all Ezra did was read the word of God. And as he read the word of God, the people became so convicted of their sin that they fell down on their faces and worshiped God and confessed their sin. You see, this is a very powerful book. I have thousands, literally thousands of books in my library. But there's only one book. There's only one book that has changed my life, and it's this book right here. You see, this is the only book that is inerrant. That means it's without error. It's infallible, which means it's without fault. It's inspired, which means it's breathed out. It's the literal word of God. Husbands, you want to know how to be a good husband? This book right here will tell you. Wives, you want to know how to be a good wife? You want to know how to be a good parent? Children, they don't... When babies are born, they don't come with an owner's manual, do they? But we have an owner's manual right here to teach us how to raise our children. You want to know how to, uh, to, to live a holy life right here? You want to know how to be saved? This book tells you how to be saved. You see, anything and everything you need to know about the, the spiritual realm and even outside the spiritual realm in our own daily walk, this book teaches us. What does the scripture say is what Paul said. What does the scripture say? 
And so Paul said, what does the scripture say? And he's quoting directly from the book of Genesis. And he look, look back at it. He says, so what does the scripture say? Verse three, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a direct quote from the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God. So how is it that Abraham was saved? How was it that, that he came to a realization that he was justified, that, that he, a sinner, was no longer considered a sinner by holy God? It says that, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Translated, this word accounted or counted is translated many ways in Romans 4. It's, Paul uses this word many times in Romans and, and Galatians. It literally means to put in someone's account. Abraham believed God, and God credited his, faith, credited his account faith and righteousness. In other words, Abraham's bank account was empty. Abraham was bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. He had nothing in the tank. His tank was empty. No money in the bank account. And so he believed God. He had, what does believing God mean? He had faith. And when he began to have faith in God, God put into his account righteousness. You see that? So when you put your faith in God, when you trust God at his word, he puts into your account righteousness and salvation. All of us are in the same predicament as Abraham. We're a bankrupt corporation. Our stock is worthless. So we need someone to credit our account. How does that happen? We can't write off our own debt. You can't file bankruptcy in God's court. Paul said Abraham believed God. It's as simple as that. He trusted God. One night, God spoke to Abraham called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, called him out from worshiping those false gods and those false idols. And, and God said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, you're an old man. He was really old. His wife was really old. He said, but Abraham, I'm going to make you, I want you to look up to the starry sky. You see all those stars? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as those stars in the sky. I'm going to make your sons as numerous as the sands on the shore of the, the, the grains of sand on the shore. Now, Abraham had an opportunity here to not have faith, right? To not trust. He could have said, God, I'm, I'm like almost 100 years old, literally. So is my wife. She's no spring chicken either. There's no possible way, humanly possible, there's no possible way for me to be the father of many sons because I have no children. But you see what Abraham did. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Abraham trusted God. He went to his wife, Sarah, and said, honey, I know we're old, but get your walker. We're moving across the street from an elementary school because God's about to give us a whole lot of kids. That's trust. That's faith. You see, trusting God, even when things don't make sense, when it doesn't make humanly possible sense, that's when we have faith, and God blesses that faith. Yes, Abraham worked. Verses 4 and 5 talk about how, how, how his, his works were a result of his faith. He, he says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You see, the, the, the point is, though, that works and, and faith, works and faith, his works were a result of his faith. Works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. Works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. 
when you have faith and you trust and you believe, that's the roots. That, that's where everything is clenched and replenished. The fruit comes out from the work. So once you're saved, once you have faith, this is what James says, once you have faith, then you can show your works. You can show your fruit. Works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. So we come to the end. You can have in your life and you can walk before God and, and what these passages are saying, these verses we just read. You can walk before God and say and plead not guilty. And you can get a fair trial before God. God is a fair judge and he will judge you fairly. Or you can plead guilty as charged and get mercy from God. The question is, what, what are you going to choose? Do you really want to plead not guilty? You You okay? Are you okay with saying, I'm okay, you're okay, we're, 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 I'm just going to be, I'm going to put my goodness and my, my, my church involvement and, and my uh, humanitarian record and my, 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 all the money that I've given to, to, to the poor, I, I'm going to put that and I'm going to be judged according to that. Are you sure that's what you want to do? You sure that all you want is justice? All you want is a fair trial? Be careful because what you ask for is what you're going to get you will get the justice of God. Or you can plead guilty. Guilty as charged. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. You can plead guilty, and then you can get the grace and the mercy of God. And the way we receive the mercy of God is by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Quickly, let me give you an acrostic for faith, and then we'll close. Take the word faith, F-A-I-T-H, and I, I, I've given you, I'm going to give you a word that represents each one of those letters of faith, which will help you to understand how you can apply that blood to your life, to be covered over, to be saved. F stands for facts. You have to understand the facts of the gospel. We tell the little children, you see, salvation is not just an old man's, Christianity is not an old man's religion. It's, it's for the youngest of young to the oldest of old. But there are certain things that you must understand. When we, uh, we, we just baptized young Toby, a little boy, six years old, and and we've talked to Toby and, and all of our children that you must understand that you are a sinner. Do you know what sin is? Do you understand sin? There are certain facts that you must understand. You must know. Yes, it goes beyond facts. It goes beyond intellectualism. It must because Satan himself knows that Jesus died on the cross. Satan himself knows that, that he, he, he knows, cerebrally knows that, that Jesus lives and he died and, and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Satan knows those things, so we know it must go beyond facts, but we must have the facts in place first. Facts. The A stands for affirmation. Not just facts, but there has to be saving faith. It means there's affirmation of those facts. I accept those facts. I affirm those facts that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. The facts are true. That's affirmation. The I stands for internalization. This is where it goes from head knowledge to heart knowledge. You see, it's not enough to know it. We must experience, we must internalize it. The Bible says, but as many as received him, meaning Jesus, received him, to them gave he the right to be called the children of God. You must receive him. You, not, you, you can't just know him, but you must receive him. T stands for trust. Trust is the responsive part. The emotional part whereby I say, God, I believe in you. I accept you. I receive you. I trust you in my daily life. I surrender. I submit. I yield. I trust in you. H is for hope. The book of Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. 
Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. That's how we use the word hope today. Hope is not wishful thinking. Faith and hope are a confident assurance. And friend, today you can have the confident assurance that if you were to leave this world, that you would step into the glories of heaven. Let me give you very quickly another acrostic for faith. Bobby Welch wrote this one, the former pastor of the First Baptist Church of Daytona Beach, Florida. He took the word faith and he said this. He said, forsaking all, I trust him. That's what you do. Forsaking all, I trust him. What does that mean? That means you, you cannot get to heaven on your own. You must forsake all. You must turn your back on everything and run to him and place your faith in him.